Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss Ah yes Every week we like to look at a different way the human body can go wrong and it's <laughs> It's it's actually a... It's never-ending. Uh, well, it is. You know, when people talk about perfect design, I think they should go back <laughs> and have a look at some medical books. All right, Dr. Matt Barton, Dr. Mike Todorovich are here from Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. And tonight we're talking about uh, one of those female problems that comes around, which is endometriosis. Now, Matt, we always start off with a case study. Ta-da! Okay, so this case, it's a relatively rare case, but I got this from the Journal of Minimal Invasive Gynecology. Mm-hmm. So that was on Michael's um, bedside table. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this particular case, um, a 35-year-old woman with no family history of endometriosis was diagnosed with pelvic endometriosis and underwent a laparoscopic bilateral ovarian cystectomy, which basically means they put a scope in both sides of her uterus, both sides of her ovaries had cysts on it, and they just okay. pulled the cysts out. After surgery, she started to she started a combined oral contraceptions mm-hmm. or contraceptive, so that's going to be progesterone and estrogen. Six months later, they halted it, and they found that the patient reported nosebleeds and nasal pain. After five months, her physician then performed a nasal endoscopy and showed there was multiple lesions, which they later removed. So she was diagnosed with endometriosis, but later on they actually found some of it in her nose. Which is a long way from your uterus, yeah, bodily some, speaking. Some distance, yeah. All right. So we'll get to and what it's happened. It's relatively rare, I will say that. Okay. So we'll get to the end of this later, shall we? Yes, we will. Okay. 
The rest of you can Google it, see if you can find it. So, um, sorry, Mike, what is endometriosis? So inside the uterus, you'll find that the innermost lining of the uterus is the endometrium. And mm -hmm. so every single month, the regular menstrual cycle, when it begins, estrogen levels start to rise. And as the estrogen levels start to rise, the endometrium layer of the uterus starts to thicken and build up and become more vascularized. And basically, it's preparing itself for a fertilized egg to implant. Mm -hmm. Now, after around about 14 days of this process, if a, if a fertilized egg doesn't implant, then the estrogen levels start to drop significantly and the endometrium starts to shed. And this is menstruation. So endometriosis is when Cells of this endometrial layer actually exist somewhere outside of the uterus itself. And How so, do they get there? Well, that's a good question. Um, Why do we want... have good questions? So in terms of the causes of it? <laughs> yeah. Okay, so they don't, the, the plain answer is not, they're not sure, but okay. there's kind of four theories. The main theory, or this is the strongest theory, is that, like as Mike said, when the, the female menstruates, it goes out the front door, mm -hmm. but there's a theory that it's, in some females, it will go out the exits, so mm -hmm. out the out of the fallopian tubes. Yep. So all these um, endometrial cells will spill out instead of going through the cervix down the vagina and out. It goes back up into the um, fallopian tubes and then spills out into the into the pelvis. Okay, and it's got nowhere to go, so it just sits accumulates. There and, yeah. yeah, and those okay. cells can then reseed it. And then mm -hmm. that can cause the issue. Another theory is that the endometriosis tissue, like cancer, can almost like metastasize or spread through blood or lymphatic and go to other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. The other theory is um, all cells. It's in your also important to say that endometriosis isn't cancer. So no, it's yes. not. It, 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 is ben it is a benign yet destructive mm. disorder, but it's not cancerous. Okay. Right. Um, the third theory is. Um, all cells have the potential to change into endometrial into, well, um, cells. cells yeah. Yeah. Um, so this could be the case for this nosebleed, that mm -hmm. those nose cells developed into more endometrial cells. And the last one is... Is that a stem cell-based theory? I didn't really investigate too much. Question <laughs> without notice. Not, sorry. It's, not a, it's not a strong theory, let's uh, say. Uh, yeah. uh, the last one is through direct transplantation. So this is more common when um, females have had direct surgery, like they've mm -hmm. had a C-section, and there's been a, a disturbance where they've possibly moved some endometrial tissue into other parts of the pelvis or abdomen. Okay. But it's important to note that um, there is a strong genetic link, so we're unsure how that fits in as well. Mm. And that every, obviously every month, because this is endometrial tissue located mm. outside the uterus, it means that every month when the menstrual cycle does occur and estrogen levels do rise, this tissue, regardless of where it is, will still respond to that estrogen and start to build up and thicken. And then again, at the end of the cycle, it will start to shed and this is going to res can result in bleeding, pain, inflammation and ultimately scarring wherever mm. it is. Yeah, and of course, being female, we're used to bleeding pain all the time. <laughs> yes. So we often don't recognise that there's a difference. Yeah, it's that's just a good like, point. this is worse than usual. Yeah, well, you know, 
Oh, ourselves up on the cross, so yeah, it's just life. <laughs> well, we do, and we don't tend to take it serious. Well, we take it seriously, but not sort of. I better go to the doctor and get this checked out mm. seriously, and mm. especially if you're not trying to have kids. Yes, uh, if you're not up to that point yet, or you've had them mm-hmm. and problems begin, it's oh, it's just the change. You know, we've got excuses for everything in terms of pain, yeah, especially you know around that region. So let's. Let, how common is it then to, to get endometriosis? So determining the prevalence within the community is quite difficult because a lot of women are going to be asymptomatic, so they mm-hmm. don't present with any symptoms. And even if they do present with symptoms, it's quite varied, so quite mm. difficult to be able to determine whether it is or is not endometriosis. The only way that you can really determine is through surgery, through yep. laparoscopic investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the stats sit between... 2 to 11% of women, predominantly within reproductive age, have endometriosis. Um, is, it, is the prevalence of it increasing? Um, you've probably heard it before, maybe since the 1980s, that maybe the prevalence of endometriosis has increased. But in actual fact, it's predominantly just the fact that we're better at identifying mild endometriosis, mm-hmm. which probably just went... Uh, Unnoticed. Yeah, that's right, undiagnosed. Yeah. And w- because of our increased use, use of uh, laparoscopy, then we're better at diagnosing as well. So it's probably mm. not increasing in prevalence. Uh, it's just that we're better at identifying it. All right. Um, However, in saying that, just to, yeah. just to quickly jump in, in saying that while we may be better at identifying it, the average time frame between symptoms and then getting diagnosed with endometriosis is 6.7 years. Oh, okay. So that's still a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are the common signs and symptoms then? What what should women and, you know, and their partners be, be well, looking out for at least? Because sometimes we will whine and the, the people in our lives will say, you know what, you should probably get that checked out. Mm. Um, and maybe men are good at listening to what their wives are saying to them. And I know I know a lot of women are going, really, Kelly? <laughs> but no, they are. They'll say, you know what, you've been talking about that for a while now. Yeah. And you probably need to go and see someone. Mm. You know, because women are always telling men to do that. Men True. should be telling the women in their lives to go and do this. So what sort of signs and symptoms are we talking about? Okay, so as Michael said, there are. it's common to have delays from the first onset of symptoms to the diagnosis or even to mm. the, um, the start of treatment. And that could be up to 10 years from the oh. first mm. possible symptom to the, the start of the treatment. So there is that long period. Um, each woman is different in terms of symptoms. As Mike said, that some women will have no pain whatsoever. Mm. It probably also depends on where the uh, endometriosis location is. I can talk about some locations in a second. But generally, the pain would be the big one. Mm -hmm. Um, pain that will go with the menstrual cycle, particularly just leading up to the bleed and then with the bleed. So it kind of goes with that cycling pattern. Um, Pain during intercourse is quite common. A heavy or abnormal menstrual flow, also common. Infertility. um, So Mike will probably talk about the percentages of um, how many people with infertility actually have endometriosis. Um, Pain on urination, pain on bowel movements. and So that will depend where that um, endometrius or endometrial uh, tissue is. Yeah. So in, this, in one particular study, they did a study of about 1,300 women with endometriosis and they found about 96% was in the pelvis. 
And mm-hmm. so common places would be the ovaries. Yep. Um, sometimes that would cause a cyst to form, um, which is in that case that I read out, and that can be sometimes called a chocolate cyst. So it's kind of filled chocolate with... Chocolate cyst? Well, it would look like runny chocolate when it's been busted. Okay. And so that is kind of an That sounds more appealing than it actually is. Yeah, very yeah, much so. Very badly named. Yeah. Um, <laughs> within the fallopian tube. And so this could also cause adhesions, which um, kind of are these growths, like spiderwebs growths around the ovaries or the fallopian tubes, and that's mm-hmm. going to present with the issues of infertility, possibly one of many. Um, because it's spilling out those exit doors, as I said, it will go down um, mm-hmm. south and it will sit at the base of the pelvis, so that can then go into the ligaments of the pelvis, and so about 67% of the pelvic cases will sit on the ligaments. And then you have other things like... Um, the posterior cul-de-sac. Do you know where your posterior cul-de-sac is? That little bump in the bottom on your bum? Is that what you're talking about? No, it's just it's behind the uterus in front of the rectum. So there's a pouch there. No, none of us know that except you two. <laughs> you're the only, and maybe some doctors who specialise in that area. Otherwise, nobody knows what you're talking about. And so just really quickly, outside the pelvis, so this is about 3.4% of the cases, that could go into places like the intestines, which possibly could lead to the, the GI complaints, all mm-hmm. the way up to maybe um, even into the ureters, yep. or the bladder, or the diaphragm, and I guess in her case, or the adrenal gland, in her yep. case, up to the nose. Right. Mm. So that is really weird. So yeah. how did they work out in the end that that was where it came from with our case study tonight? Well, they wouldn't. I don't think they would know where it actually came from, but the only, as Mike said, the only dif- definitive diagnosis you can do is um, excise the tissue and then do mm. a biopsy, and then you know that it's endometrial it's tissue. From. Yeah. But how it got there, I'm not sure they could really ascertain that. It's just theories at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Don't know how it gets there, but like but, Matt said, they just they pull it out and they do. It's histologies the being able mm. to look at cells under a microscope and they'll be able to say, oh, these are endometrial cells sitting in the nose. But an interesting point is. Uh, Approximately uh, 5% of um, born females, they will have a menstrual cycle at birth and so, or they have menstruation at birth. So they've had a high level of estrogen from their mother whilst mm. in the womb and that has somehow developed their endometrium. And when they come out, it, there's a sudden removal of all those, that estrogen and they can get a small bleed. And it's mm. thought that there's a possibility that, that the same thing could happen where you have that posterior or that backward flow out the exit doors yeah. back into their pelvis and that might be the starting point for some women to get endometriosis from birth. Oh, Again, theories are. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So in terms of fertility then, it, it's one of those things that can cause real trouble for couples yeah. trying to get pregnant. Yeah, it's probably one of the leading causes of infertility. And if you look at the prevalence of endometriosis for, let's say, fertile women, the mm. statistics sit between uh, about 0.5 and 5% of fertile women have endometriosis. You look at infertile women and it jumps up to between 25 and 45% have mm. endometriosis. Now, the thing is, while there is a, a link there, we don't actually know what the causal relationship actually is. So, in, so what, what does endometriosis do that uh, doesn't allow pregnancy yeah, or that well, makes it difficult? Exactly. I mean, we, we know in uh, quite severe cases because in severe cases of endometriosis, it's destructive, uh, it's painful, it results in inflammation and results in scarring and can actually change or distort the anatomy within the pelvis. Mm. So that can be a cause of infertility and it can affect 
any hmm. part of pregnancy. I mean, it can it can affect the way the eggs released. It can affect the way um, the sperm survives. It can affect fertilization. It can affect implantation. So it can affect actually every stage. Hmm. But in the more mild cases where it's not very destructive. There's not a huge amount of pain or inflammation and it doesn't distort the pelvis. We, we don't actually know how this can result in infertility. We don't know mm. what that relationship is. Uh, does it improve or disappear after pregnancy or menopause? They used to think it did and they used to sometimes um, use that as a treatment so they would encourage women to get pregnant to try and get rid of it. Mm -hmm. um, how did that go? Yeah, well... Uh, there's a few things to consider. So kind of going back to last week, which we did headaches. Was that last week? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so a big part of headaches w were the sensitization of all the nerves in your head. Mm. And so they're highly sensitive, particularly for those with migraines. Um, a similar thing happens with endometriosis where all the nerves in the pelvis are so sensitized because of all this inflammation that's going on. And so they're really hypersensitive. And so every month we have this new release of this inflammation from this scar tissue or this tissue that's been implanted in the wrong places. And so those nerves just get stimulated again. Now, the thought is if you can remove the cycling, so if you can mm. give certain drugs like the pill and you actually stop the menstrual cycle, you will stop the sensitization of the nerves and therefore the pain will go away. And so essentially when you get pregnant, mm. you remove the cycling because you've now got nine months where there's no removal of progesterone. Yeah. Progesterone stays really high and estrogen will stay high. So the thought that you have that diminishing um, hormonal level is not there anymore. Mm. So for some women it does work, but the other counter side to this is because these nerves are already sensitized as the baby's growing – there's less room in the pelvis and the abdomen and starts push on those nerves again. So, and these nerves are more sensitive yeah. now because it's been, okay. they've been sensitized and so you can get pain. And so I guess the clear answer would be for some it might help, for others it mightn't, um, and it won't fix it. So there's no evidence to suggest after pregnancy that endometrial tissue will shrink. It will be still there. And once mm. the mother goes back to her normal menstrual cycling, it probably will return. So menopause though? Like once you're not doing that anymore, it did. Well, there's some, there's some drugs where they give, um, so this is a gonadotrophin agonist, which comes from your hypothalamus. Mm -hmm. So they give a drug that is like a hormone like that, which kind of puts you in a menopausal state. So just, that, just quickly to interrupt that. So the whole process of, so obviously when it comes to endometriosis, as estrogen levels increase, it thickens the endometrium and then you mm. start getting the pain and all, all those issues associated with it. What triggers the estrogen to increase is a signal coming from the brain, specifically the hypothalamus, mm -hmm. and it releases a hormone called gonadotropin releasing hormone yeah. that then travels down and stimulates the, the pituitary glands, which are just sitting underneath it at the base of the brain, and that releases two other hormones called luteinizing hormone and follicle-stimulating hormone, and then they will stimulate estrogen levels. So this whole process called... Um, cascade? It's a cascade. It's, cascade, it's an yeah. axis. It's a hypothalamic pituitary uh, ovarian axis, is, mm -hmm. which is what it's called, is one, then the next, and the next. So if you stop basically one portion of it, you're going to stop the estrogen. And so that's what Matt's talking about okay. that. So that can help in some cases but in menopause even though your cycling stops there is still small levels of estrogen that will be released from the the ovaries so the problem may still exist and you may still have issues like with cysts and so forth 
on your ovaries or scar tissue in your pelvis. So mm. it's, it, it, it's a myth. So it, yep. menopause won't stop it. Done. Treatments, we've kind of talked about that, but what are the major treatments? Is, does surgery help or...? That's probably the the main one that will, could be the closest to a like it can't be cured. No. It can just be well managed. Yeah. Um, I guess the point is um, every every woman's different, and yeah. you have to manage her symptoms accordingly, uh, and you have to weigh up priorities. So some women will still want to get pregnant, and so you can't use pills or contraception mm. in that case. So you might have to use fertility like IVF and so forth and manage the pain at the same time. But if you're happy to then use the pill, progesterone, estrogen, or in some more severe cases you can use like a depot mm-hmm. or a device that you implant into the uterus that releases progesterone over time and that can help with those symptoms. But the more potentially the more severe are the surgical um, interventions, which can be through the keyhole, which is like mm. laparoscopic, um, all the way through to potentially hysterectomy. And the success of that is variable. Mm. Yeah. You know, it, it's dependent upon um, how much they're able to clear away, whether they can identify it all, and obviously mm. the individual surgeon themselves. And the, the progress of endometriosis is like the natural course of which is different from person to person. So uh, 31% of the time, or for 31% of people, it will progress. For 32% of people, endometriosis will stay the same. And for 38% of people, it will regress. So it's quite variable. And those stats are quite even amongst, mm. you know, whether it progresses, stays the same, or regresses. Mm. So yeah. it's, it's difficult. And like Matt was saying, if somebody wants to get pregnant as well, but they also experience quite severe pain because of their endometriosis, current treatment options usually work by suppressing estrogen which also suppresses ovulation also suppresses implantation which Mm. basically is counterintuitive to being able to get pregnant so some of those treatment options basically don't mesh with pregnancy um future for this disease (laughs) and, and research so at the moment there's as far as I could tell there's not a huge amount on the horizon uh because without understanding the pathophysiology of the disease, what's happening Mm. in this process. It's very hard to find a cure for it. Like Matt was saying, there's treatments, but they're not curative. Um, It seems to be that we're we're looking more at the genetics of it and we're Mm -hmm. starting to identify some loci on genes that have a relationship with endometriosis. Mm. Um, We're also identifying some neurons in the brain that seem to be very important in this whole hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and sort of plays a role in the release of these hormones And because the whole process has to do with the pulsatile patterned release of hormones being released and stopping, release, stopping, release, stopping. And what you can do is when you play around with the levels of these hormones and you continually release a particular hormone, it actually alters the way that this whole process works. And so current treatments tend to be looking at the pulsatile effect of these hormones that are being released, whether it be the gonadotropin-releasing hormone from the hypothalamus or the luteinizing hormone or follicle-stimulating hormone from the Mm. pituitary or whether it's estrogen itself down at the ovary. So, okay, yeah. so would, I mean, is therefore the the focus would then have to be: is there something that happens with a, a large amount of women who have endometriosis, where something happens in that cascade process and doesn't happen with all of them, or just some of them? Potentially, Possibly? 
It's it's difficult because all roads lead to Rome being yep. endometriosis, but there's potentially multiple roads okay. to that endpoint. And so to the cul-de-sac. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so there could be multiple causes resulting in endometriosis. Well, that story didn't end well, oh, did no, it? I'm sorry. No, that's okay. It can be well managed. Um, so yep. working with your physician, your gynecologist, um, mm. it can be well managed both in the, the medical medicine side of things and the surgical. So yeah. there's a lot of hope. But as we said, there's no cure, but it can be managed well. All right. Thank you once again Thanks, for Kat. sharing your expertise. Been good Thank having you. you here. Thank you. Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike, you can get there, Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast, wherever you usually get your podcasts, and you should do that because uh, they're very bright. And, uh, At least I am. Lots of good info. <laughs> <laughs> What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.